Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. The apostle writes, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers, in our Lord Jesus Christ, there is a responsive refrain among modern Christians that I believe most of us here are familiar with. If I say, God is good, and all the time, sometimes this joyful refrain can seem trite and cliche, but at its root is an assurance and a conviction that in all situations, we can trust that God is in control. We can trust that God is faithful. We can trust that God is true. And we can trust that God is indeed in every way and in all times good. The trouble comes, of course, when Christians only use this saying in times of goodness and prosperity. In times of peace, in times of stability, in times of calm, it's easy for us to say, God is good. 
In times of uncertainty, trouble, trial, and suffering, it's harder for us to say these words. And this limited use of the phrase, only in times when things are good, is what makes it seem trite and inauthentic. If Christians only say God is good all the time in good times, what does that say about what we really think about God's character? This phrase was uh, popularized in North American Christianity um, by the 1998 Don Moon song, God is Good All the Time. Some of you might be familiar with that song. Some of you might be singing it in your heads right now. But this phrase, this refrain, didn't actually originate in North American Christianity. The phrase originated in the churches of West Africa and was popularized by Christians in Liberia during that country's civil war in the 1980s. So the phrase, God is good all the time, actually arose out of a context of Christian witness in a country ravaged and torn apart by war. Liberian Christians met for worship and greeted one another with the refrain, God is good all the time, even while they mourned their dead, buried their children, repaired their broken homes, fled their cities, and tended to the wounded in their own communities. In times of peace and in times of war, in times of prosperity, in times of want, in times of security and in times of uncertainty, in life and in death, in good and in bad. God is good all the time. This is the groundwork that the Apostle Paul is laying out for the church in Rome here in Romans chapter 5. This whole first portion of the letter from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is laying out a theological foundation for everything that follows. And Paul's theological argument that he lays out in these first eight chapters of the book of Romans goes something like this. We are all, every one of us, bound by sin and deserving of God's wrath and judgment for our iniquity. In the presence of the God who is just, who is in his very nature righteous and faithful and just, in his presence we are exposed as unrighteous, unfaithful, and unjust. But in his faithfulness, God does not abandon us to the death that we deserve for our sin, but gives us the gift of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Just as Abraham was made right with God by faith, we too are made right with God by faith, who adopts us as children of Abraham and children of God. And because we are made right with God in this way, we experience spiritual peace and joy in this life 
Because just as Adam's sin became a curse to all, so Christ's sacrifice becomes a blessing for all. In baptism, the apostle says, we die with Christ in his death and die to sin in our lives. And we are made alive with Christ in his resurrection and therefore we live for God. We are transformed from being slaves to sin to being slaves to righteousness, to being slaves to the God who is righteous. And even though we continue to wrestle with sin throughout our lives, our identity, our being, our very life is found not in this body cursed with the stain of death, but in Christ, who gives us new life by his Holy Spirit and leads us into all righteousness, even in our present suffering, to prepare us in this mortal life, in this mortal body, for the everlasting life that is to come in his restored and renewed creation. And the reason that the Apostle Paul lays out this theological narrative in these first eight chapters of the book of Romans is so that the Christians in Rome will have a common foundation from which they can begin to resolve some of the important issues that have been dividing the church there. Like all the young and growing churches in the ancient world and like many churches today, the Christians in Rome wrestled with how exactly the gospel was supposed to look in their lives, in their context, in their city. And they had disagreements, like many churches today do, about what that was supposed to look like. And that's what Paul is trying to address in this letter. Like many of the Christian communities that Paul writes to in the New Testament, the Christian community in Rome had attracted both Jewish and Gentile peoples to this community that worshipped Jesus and was defined by his name and his gospel. And the cultural differences and assumptions between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians had become so tense that Paul was asked to address them from his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And as we read this letter to the Romans, as we read all of Paul's letters in the New Testament, a lot of the issues might seem trivial to us, like whether or not a Christian can eat meat, whether or not a Christian can serve the emperor, whether or not a Christian can go to public festivals, whether or not a Christian must observe the Sabbath day. Jewish and Gentile converts alike wondered what being a Christian meant for their relationship to Judaism, for their relationship to Old Testament law, for their relationship to Jewish dietary laws, and for their relationship to the nation of Israel in the region of Palestine. For many of the early Christians, these were vitally important matters. And what Paul is saying in our passage today is this, that all of these issues, while they are vitally important, are things that we can trust God with. Because 
We trust God with life and death itself. We trust that in Christ, God has delivered us from the curse of sin and death and given us the sure hope of eternal life in Christ through his resurrection. And if we can trust God with that, if we can literally trust God with our death, that he will give us life, then of course we can trust God with matters of diet, of citizenship, of nationality, and of obedience. I want to look at one specific example of what Paul is dealing with here, the question of whether or not a Christian can eat meat, which Paul addresses in Romans 14. Eating meat in early Christianity was a tricky issue for a variety of reasons, both for Jews and for Gentiles. For Jewish Christians living in Rome, eating meat was an issue because of the difficulty of finding meat that had been prepared according to kosher rules. And for all Christians, eating meat was an issue because generally meat sold in the market was meat that had been sacrificed to idols. On top of that, there was a question of solidarity with the poor because meat was a luxury in the ancient world, a luxury for the wealthy. And so there was a question of whether or not Christians ought to eat meat at all. Even if those other obstacles could be avoided, even if they could find meat that had been prepared in a proper Jewish way that hadn't been sacrificed to idols, Christians wondered whether it should just be avoided altogether because it seemed wrong for wealthy Christians to splurge on meat when their sisters and brothers in Christ couldn't even afford to buy bread every day. So this is what the Christians in Rome are wrestling with. This is what they're struggling with. Can we eat meat or can't we? And the Christians are divided about this. They disagree. Some of the Christians say, well, you know, like idols aren't even real. They don't represent anything. There's no power behind them. It's a similar issue that Paul addresses in his letter to the Corinthians. We can eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols because idols aren't anything at all. They haven't been sacrificed to anything. It's just meat. So we can eat it. Other Christians say all of the Old Testament laws have been fulfilled in Christ, so we don't need to eat meat that's been prepared in a kosher way. It doesn't matter because all of that, all of the purity of what we eat has been fulfilled in Christ. But other Christians say, no. It is important to respect the life of the animal and kill it and butcher it in a way that is respectful of its life, in a way that honors God and the work that God put into creating this animal. Other Christians say, no, we can't eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols because that will be a temptation to our sisters and brothers who have converted from paganism if they see us eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols, it might entice them to go to the market and fall back into idolatry. Other Christians say, no, we can't eat meat because it's wrong for wealthy Christians to eat meat while the poor are starving. 
And the way that Paul speaks into this issue, and you can read it for yourselves in Romans 14, is stunning. Paul says, let those who are convinced that eating meat is okay, eat meat. And let those who have an issue with eating meat not eat meat. The issue here is that you need to love one another, respect one another, bear with one another in love. Do not despise your sister or brother in Christ because of what they eat. In all things, bear with one another and build each other up. If your sister or brother has an issue with eating meat and you don't, don't eat meat around them. Respect them for what God has impressed upon their heart. And don't make them feel uncomfortable by doing something that they're uncomfortable with you doing. If we can trust God with matters of life and death, Paul says, we can trust him with this. I wonder what things the Apostle Paul would address in our midst today. Pastor Amanda brought us a beautiful word this morning about God's faithfulness, about how God leads us into the wilderness but doesn't abandon us there. That God journeys with us through the wilderness and delivers us safely on the other side as we follow him in faith. And as we look ahead to the next chapter of the life of this congregation, I think there are plenty of things that we can be reminded to trust God in. Things that seem like a big deal to us, things that might seem like matters of life and death. But as the Apostle Paul would remind us, we can trust God even with these big things, even with these weighty matters, because he is a God who we trust with life and with death. As we look ahead to the transitions that are coming in our staffing, both in our pastoral staff and in our support staff, it's important for us to remember that we can trust the God of life to deliver us safely while we discern. As this congregation seeks now to call not one but two ministers, as this congregation seeks to restructure its support staff to better support our ministries, we can step forward without fear. We can be sad for what we're losing. This church has been richly blessed by the current pastoral team, by the current staff structure. And it's important for us to acknowledge the sadness that comes with saying goodbye and the sadness that comes with change. But this church can also look forward with joy to the future that God has in store as the church builds a new team of pastors, a new team of staff around those who remain that will bless and challenge this congregation in ways that we cannot yet imagine.
as we look ahead to the ongoing conversation about evening services, it's important for us to remember that we can trust the faithful one to give us wisdom and guidance. As our elders and deacons deliberate together next week, we look forward to the future without fear. We can mourn the ways that our culture has changed. We can praise God for the ways that this congregation has been richly blessed by the tradition of evening services. And it's important for us to acknowledge the loss that comes when beloved institutions come to an end. But regardless of the outcome of next week's conversation, we can also celebrate with joy the new opportunities that God has given us, the blessing that special services have been, the regular rhythms of catechism preaching in the morning services, and the renewal in congregational catechism learning that we've experienced through our Dive into Doctrine curriculum. As this congregation seeks to respond appropriately to changing expectations and adapt to a changing culture, we trust in the God who brings life out of death. And as we look ahead to the constant and unending conversation about how to minister effectively to our youth, it's important for us to remember that we can trust in the covenant God who is faithful from generation to generation. As we continue to seek the best ways to respond to changing cultural norms and expectations, we can step forward without fear, trusting in God's promise to be our God and the God of our children. It is good and right for us to lament and protest the cultural realities that strip young people away from their faith communities and support networks and expect them to be able to navigate life in the world as untethered individuals. But we also celebrate with joy the new challenges that we have been given as we see a renewal in home faith practices in mentoring relationships, and in congregational involvement with our young people. As this church seeks to support, encourage, and equip young Christians for lives of faithful discipleship, we trust in the God who speaks light into darkness and who promises to pour out his love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. people of God in all things, great and small. We can trust in the God who brings life out of death. In times of peace and in times of war, in times of prosperity and in times of want, in times of stability and times of uncertainty, in times of rest and in times of wandering, we can declare with conviction and joy 
God is good. All the time. And all the time, God is good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. Oh, Lord, our God. Through one man, sin entered the world. And brought a curse on all the living. Because of that curse, we are unable by our own power to respond to you in ways that lead to life. But we thank you and we praise you that just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so too the gift of God's grace came through one man, Jesus Christ, to overflow to all. Lord, we thank you for this indescribable gift of your grace. We thank you for the gift of faith that makes us right with you so that we can stand in your presence and worship you without fear. We thank you that because of the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation now for us who are in Christ Jesus. That we are more than conquered. Because our victory is already won. Oh Lord, it is in the assurance of that conviction that we stand before you now and declare our trust in you. We are yours in life and in death. You so watch over us that not a hair can fall from our head without your will. You assure us that all things must work together for our salvation. And so, O oh Lord, as we step forward in faith, into this next chapter of our lives. We step forward in trust. Trust in the God who brings life out of death. Trust in the God who brings light out of darkness. Trust in the God who will transform our sorrow into joy and our suffering into strength. 
We trust in you because you are good all the time. And so, O oh Lord, we pray that you would bless us by the presence of your Spirit and strengthen us for the journey ahead. That we may bring glory to your name and in all things do what is pleasing to you. Lead us, O oh Lord, we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, 